The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. In our largely secular world, most think there is no afterlife, no reward or punishment in the hereafter. Yet most still wish to act morally and even ascetically, delaying or refusing gratification in favor of some higher ideal. Even though without God or an afterlife, there is no one watching and judging us. Even the very concepts of right and wrong are, by some, seen as merely human inventions. Are we living in the long shadow of a dead god, as Nietzsche suggested? And would we be better to break free? Is moral constraint a means of maintaining social order, essential to the smooth running of society? Or can a merely human morality also be transcendent and ultimate? In this episode of Philosophy for Our Times, Turkish journalist, author, and activist Eke Temel Kuran, Anglican priest and scholar Alison Milbank, and philosopher of mind Peter Shojtek debate the existence of a secular morality. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers. I'll now hand you over to our host for this debate, Mark Salter. Welcome to The Precarious Case for Being Good. This morning, we're going to talk about morality. With us today, we have three experts in various aspects of this subject. First of all is um, uh, Eche Temekuran, who is a Turkish um, award-winning journalist, author, and uh, was once a television presenter, who has been twice rated as one of the 10 most influential people on social media. And Eche's latest book, published uh, this year, is called Together, 10 Choices for a Better Now. Coming at this from a slightly different angle is Alison as Milbank. Professor Milbank is an Anglican priest, a canon theologian, a Southwell minister, and a professor of theology at Nottingham University. And she's known for her work on the interface between religion and culture. The topic of her book uh, in 2018 is entitled God and the Gothic. Peter Suicid H, on the other hand, comes from another very different angle. Rising star of psychedelic philosophy, I think is a good way of describing Peter H. He's a research fellow at the University of Exeter, fresh back from marking 150 examination papers. But in his real world, he was interested more in the work of Nietzsche, Ian Whitehead, and most perhaps importantly, the process and philosophy of the mind. He's also the inspiration for the Marvel superhero Karnak, and he wrote a book, Numinatics, in 2015. So, here we are. We have three distinguished speakers who certainly have very different topics on this. 
can and should morality leave religion behind? Eche, what's your take on that? Uh, I am here because I wrote this book together. And what I say is God is us. So I believe in us. In that respect, I'm a believer, not a believer of a religion, but a believer of humankind. And I make it as a a moral and political stance, because I do think that what we need now in the current state of the world is to believe in humankind so that we can create a better future and better world. My perspective is obviously not very young. I mean, it has a big, a long tradition in both in theology and philosophy and moral philosophy. But then my predecessors, I think, were not, I think, my predecessors uh, were lynched, uh, burned to death and so on. And now people like me who say that we have to believe in humankind and uh, power of love and everything are considered to be naive. I think this is another way of lynching in this world of cynicism. Since I believe that God is us, I believe that the source of morality uh, cannot be a holy book, but a book that is uh, admitted as the, you know, that is, that shows the wonders of humankind. And I do believe that we don't need a mediator like God to love each other. And I am saying this to challenge the current state of the world uh, where I think we are living not only a post-truth era, but also a post-good era. And also the title of this debate tells us a lot because it is already a cynical title, precarious case of being good. So why do these words now sound uh, naive to us? Why are we constantly cynicist about these words? I do think that the words are not naive, but our ears have been contaminated by the propaganda of the current system, which tells us that humans, uh, in essence, are not good. Alison, could we ask your point of view on this? Thank you. First, religion cannot be left out. As historian Tom Holland has reminded us in his recent book, Dominion, morality in Europe and the Americas, at least, is the creation of Judeo-Christian values. Had it been otherwise, no one would be woke, as he points out. Our understanding of the dignity of the human person, the development of human rights, derives from the human created in God's image. We gain our understanding it's nobler to suffer than inflict suffering from the crucifixion. Equality comes from Christian baptism. Brotherly love, sisterly love, equality, humility, are all foreign to classical thinking and scandalous. Even the secular derives from the thought of Augustine, a Christian theologian, and the tools of the Enlightenment, the belief in humankind, in the power of love, are Christian, or perhaps in the case of Eche, Islamic creations. Christianity fails to live up to its values, but they shape the failure. The philosopher Nietzsche saw this change Christianity make and he hated it, particularly the promulgation of respect for weakness. And yet he feared that the death of God would leave us lost, lose the good completely, and so it has. Secondly, religion should not be left behind. For without something or someone to call us to account, we search in vain for the common good. Now, I don't mean a cosmic policeman but an erotic concept of the good, which draws everything, plant, animal, and person, in various ways to it, and directs our selfish desires by what Plato called the higher eros, where your good 
is my good. We lack a telos, an aim which directs us. Instead, we see competing moral claims or oppressed identities pitted against each other. A lack of trust, which relies on certain metaphysical status of ideas, such as truth, honesty, and so on, leads to a bureaucratic nightmare in which we all check up on each other and undergo state surveillance and social media surveillance, and without any real purpose. We become cogs in a wheel and have no idea what anything is for. Without a strong conception of the universal reach of truth and goodness, it makes it harder to be a teacher, a parent, a bus driver, anyone who has to guide people and exercise care and responsibility. We suffer from a lack of the kind of carapace of virtues that once seemed part of the very fabric of reality and sustained us in our roles. No wonder so many professions are seeking to revive virtue ethics, which relies on this transcendent idea of the good. No wonder the Gothic has become so important because it questions what Charles Taylor calls the imminent frame, the materialist frame of our experience and our morality. Um, my view is, I partially agree with what um, Alison has just said, and I'm, I'm reading that Dominion book you mentioned as well at the moment, which is based on Nietzsche's thought somewhat. Um, I do believe that the morality that we have in the West, especially in England, as it happens, is uh, very much contingent upon Christianity, even when people confess to be an atheists. Many of the values we have, I mean, Nietzsche said the success of Christianity was atheism in the sense that its values have now sort of interfused into culture, into society, without us requiring the self-conscious belief that it's based on a transcendent um, God or, or form. However, where I, I think I differ, well, I certainly differ with Alison, and I don't know in other respects, but I think that um, for the morality we have in Western culture, generally, you do need religion. However, that's not necessarily um, a bad thing <laughs> coming from another morality. In other words, we reject Christianity, intellectually, or at least I do to a certain extent, um, and thus with it, you reject the Christian morality that has come from it. And Nietzsche, I don't think Nietzsche necessarily saw this as, a, as something to lament. I mean, he talks about an active nihilism, which is emancipatory. In other words, you know, one frees oneself from certain moral dogmas and uh, guilt and forms of behaviour. And one is free to create one's own table of values. And I see that as, um, as not something to um, deride, but something to celebrate. And so ultimately, I think you can have, well, the question is, can and should morality leave religion behind? Morality is dependent, as we know it, on religion, Christianity. Of course, there were moralities before Christianity, uh, the virtue ethics you mentioned, for example, in ancient Greece. But um, their telos, their teloi, their goals, purposes were quite different from ours. Like, for example, with Aristotle, the crown of the virtues was pride, proper pride, magnanimity. And that's something that is, um, when you read the Nicomachean Ethics, you realise how alien that is, that crown is, to how we understand morality today. In other words, it seems that teloi purposes can differ from person to person and culture to culture. Those teloi um, inform the means, so those ends inform the means. And um, there's, I, I think there's no objective purpose to life, and thus there are no absolute morals. I see morality like I see scientific laws as in flux coming from Alfred North Whitehead. Everything's in process. There are no absolutes. But I, I don't think this is uh, necessarily um, something we should fight against. I think we should endorse it. 
So that's my general point of view. There's no objective morality. There's only subjective values. But that's no bad thing, because to say it's a bad thing would imply an objective morality. Thank you, Peter, for succinctly put. I'd like to go right back to the beginning in that case. And uh, we've, I think, already answered this question in a brief way, but to explain a bit more detail. And that's actually drilled down to the idea of what morality actually is, or perhaps put it more effectively, where does morality get its power and its sanction from? I mean, you know, where, where does it come from? The authority of morality in the way we live our lives. I wondered, uh, maybe, Alison, if you could uh, be the first to pick up on that. Where does morality get its sanction from? Well, the word sanction, like the word <laughs> yeah. morality, is already a moral concept. So mm. it, it's a bit circular. We can't think without it. And when we think without it, we have to presuppose the kind of reality of the concept. And I would have said that that morality is both within the world, in the world of flux, if you like, but that that is grounded in something beyond it. And you can't really have a physical world without that you can even talk about without this metaphysical kind of level. Now, people can obviously be very good people without any religious belief. But as Peter has admitted, whether they believe or not, they are held by the fact that religions in particular hold this idea of goodness and truth. And you have to presuppose them if there is to be any meaning at all. I don't know how you can even have the human, because otherwise you're just a load of kind of cells in flux that have kind of briefly come together and which will kind of part so that to have action, to have collective action, I think we've got to have something, as I said before, that kind of grounds us. Though I'm not suggesting that it is this kind of rewards, punishments. I, I believe it should be this erotic idea of the good as something that we all desire and which calls us. I mean, how are we to exercise justice if we don't have some idea of justice, distributive justice, that we hold to in order to try and be fair? That's how I see it. Before I ask us to comment, could I ask you, uh, Alison, just to, you used the word erotic in quite a technical sense there, I think. Yeah. I'm, I suspect that, uh, like myself, other viewers may not quite understand your particular usage. Could you just give us a quick in brackets explanation of that definition of erotic? Erotic is desire. It is the will. It is our sense as human beings. There's a lovely picture by William Blake of somebody with a kind of sort of kite. And the kite says, I want, I want. And human beings are desiring creatures. They are always in this state of lack. Eros in the symposium by Plato is this kind of shabby figure. And Christianity has embraced the erotic. You won't, you'll tell me it doesn't, but in fact, Austin is a key example. But it believes that God's love is without lack. Our love is lacking, but that this can be channeled and directed and used for good so that we move from the individual desire and to love things. As we love things, we care for them. We want justice. There's a lovely little book by Elaine Scarry called On Justice, On Beauty and Being Just, that shows that the erotic leads to justice. 
as our desires become less and less selfish and we move out our, our moral horizon, which is to embrace more and more. That's a very useful expansion of my understanding of that idea. Peter, what's your take on that? You know, the physical, as we understand it, is um, merely a, an abstraction. And this is, you know, classic Whitehead. So he's he's the master of um, pointing out abstractions, as his student Russell said. So and uh, values, I think, yeah, cannot be explained through a physical understanding alone, because that is an abstraction. I believe as well as an inner core of the physical, and that is... What you could call, um, you talk about value. Well, I, I, I agree with that to a certain extent. I mean, uh, you know, Nietzsche called it the will to power, Schopenhauer, the will to live. Spinoza called it the canatus, and we have a whole history of that, going back to St. Augustine, in fact, and, and beyond, you know, to the Greeks, of course. I think that the key question, though, for me is, so I see nature as infused with value. However, they are competing values, and there's no overriding. This is, I think, the, the pinnacle, the, the key point of difference. In order to have some kind of um, objective, and that's essentially what we're talking about, some overriding morality beyond all the different cultures, uh, varieties thereof. You need to believe in a transcendent good. And that's what I find hard to believe. And that transcendent good, as we understand it, so is generally God, a God who um, bequeaths values and who himself or itself is good. Or if not God, there would be some kind of Platonic forms, transcendent forms of good. Like you know, the Plato's ultimate form is the form of the good towards which everything strives. And to certain extent, I suppose Aristotle is God's prime mover, which is the final cause of everything. But it's this that I think without religion, this is the purpose really in many ways of Nietzsche's uh, famous expression, God is dead. Without that God, there is no sanction to this universal morality. So really the question of morality here, for, for me at least, and in this Western tradition, is um, a metaphysical question, and it comes back to um, fundamental core belief in God. Now, most atheists would disagree with that, and they say, you don't need God for, for morality, you know, we've got utilitarianism, and so on and so forth. But I think ultimately, utilitarianism, you know, they, they think uh, happiness is good, for example, they think that everyone deserves an equal count in weighing up pleasure and pain. That's so, you know, everyone's equal under the eyes of God. That's ultimately Christian. This is, this is what Nietzsche says, you know, utilitarianism, socialism even is a heresy of Christianity even though that seems paradoxical. So, uh, yeah, without, I think you can't talk about an ultimate good without having some kind of transcendent religious belief, which I do not have, uh, for because I think I've read too much Nietzsche now. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I would Richie, what's your take on Well, that? now I'm listening to this, and of course, I'm like, you are more, when you speak of morality, you speak, you know, your references go back to Christianity, obviously, to Jesus and everything. I'm not coming from that world. I'm coming from a different world. I'm not a Muslim. Uh, I haven't be, been brought up like a Muslim, uh, but I lived uh, in a Muslim culture and culturally, maybe I'm a Muslim. So all this theology uh, is not present in today's Islam. In the culture I came from, there is a big lack of theology. So that is a big difference when we're talking about morality to start with. Secondly, I mean, like, of course, we are like going around the realm of poetry and theology. And these concepts are, you know, they come from poetry and poetry comes from human being. Therefore, morality comes from human being. But then actually there was something that Peter said about the subjectivity. And now, uh, since I am coming from a more practical point, I'm coming from political thought and I'm, uh, I'm approaching these concepts, faith. And so from this political point of view, but also I am trying to find a cure 
for today's political problems. Therefore, this is my perspective. And that's why I am thinking about the extreme subjectivity of morality in today's world. That's why I said in the beginning, we're living in a post-truth world. Also, we're living in a post-good world. Obviously, I'm not religious. I don't believe in religion. And I don't believe that the sanction of morality can come from religion. And I am trying to find a central concept that can be secular, uh, but does not leave out the matter of heart for humankind. So one thing that Alison said was interesting about the dignity. That is my central concept when I think about morality. The action that celebrates human dignity is good. Maybe I didn't read Nietzsche enough in that <laughs> respect, but I am more practical in the sense because we need to find out We need to talk about the good without being afraid of being oppressive or precarious or whatever. There was this moment on Spanish shore. There was a Senegalese man who were rescued from the sea, a refugee, and he hugged a white Spanish young woman, a Red Cross volunteer. This simple act of kindness, the good that celebrated human dignity, caused a lot of hatred, especially among Spanish people who were, you know, who believe that refugees were, are going to corrupt their country and so on and so forth. And there was many people, again, saying that this was a true representation of humankind and true representation of their country and their people. So if a simple act of kindness, simple act of good can create so much hatred, so much division, Don't you think that we have to, at least on practical terms, come to a common understanding of the good for the sake of surviving as humankind and for the sake of getting rid of all this malaise, both in political and in moral, you know, status quo, let's say. This is what I think when I think of morality. Uh, maybe it's too practical for this panel, but. I do think that we need a little bit of practical at this moment in history. I no, I, I quite accept that, and you know, you get into metaphysics. I, I, I do at least very easily, and <laughs> but of course, what really affects people is the practicalities. And uh, when I talk about, um, well, uh, and Alison speak about uh, teleology or you know teleology purposes as uh, informing moral actions, I think that. Although ultimately it's subjective, I think most people can agree with certain practical problems that we are mostly all facing together. For example, so you talk about a refugee crisis, but one, one thing I'm working on a little bit more is the ecological crisis. Um, so if we all sort of um, can agree, and not everyone does, but if many of us agree that there, this is a crisis, and thus we thereby create a sort of temporary purpose, goal, in other words, save the planet and thus save all of humanity and all, all of the ecosystem, And thus that can then, that telos, saving the planet, can inform moral means. In other words, ought propositions, as we'd say in philosophy, you know, one ought to uh, do this and that to save the environment. So I think we can accept that. So, so on a practical level, and this is the way we all live, of course, you know, we do act in this way. And we have courtesy and um, try to get on with our fellow humans, of course, and animals and plants and whatnot. But uh, so so I accept that, you know, for certain periods in history, one can have this more objective morality, as it were. But 
But ultimately, like David Hume said, it's not contrary to reason to prefer the scratching of your little finger to the destruction of the world. I mean, fundamentally, some people say, well, why do we even care about humanity? You know, wouldn't the world be better off if humans didn't exist? I mean, that's an interesting position that one one has to face as well. I, I do think that we are in that phase. Do you remember the footage that's been posted by many, many people during the pandemic? People were, you know, posting the footage of empty cities taken over by animals and they were in love with this image. So it was a little bit terrifying because people love the image of the world without the humans in it too much. <laughs> so I thought, how, why do we hate ourselves? Because we hate ourselves because we think we are evil, we're corrupt and so on. So for that reason, for practical reasons, to, we have to believe in humankind, we have to believe the good in humankind and so on. But that is, of course, as you said, it's quite practical. <laughs> also also that, that guilt, that hatred of humanity, Alice can probably speak of this better, but I, I'd attribute some of that to Christianity, um, perhaps more Roman Catholicism and Anglicanism. But um, I have to ask you to respond to that before we move on to part two. Obviously, we have an idea of a fallen humanity from Christianity in the West, but we also have an idea of the capacities of Christianity from the West. And I think we need both those to address the ecological crisis, as well as an understanding of humankind in relation to the rest of nature. So that's why I'm quite hospitable to ideas of panpsychism, but feel that they need grounding. Everything you say needs grounding. Otherwise, from what perspective can we say that the human has a certain priority in any sense in this ecological question? How can we justify that? I'd like to pick up on that now because I want to move on to this idea of the, the absolute fundamental importance of grounding. Uh, earlier on, Eche used the word practical. We've got to get practical. Mm-hmm. And we also seem to be agreeing generally that all of us have some clear idea that, you know, morality is built in in some way, religious or not religious. And you don't have sex with your children. You don't murder innocent people. It seems to me that these things are pretty hardwired into us. So is morality actually biologically absolute? Are there some central core truths in there that transcend, you know, these notions of transcendence? I would say no. Um, The reason, and this is quite... Even having sex with children? There are biological characteristics that we have evolved. The ones you mentioned, for example. Also compassion, altruism, and so on. But also envy, greed, uh, violence. These are also evolved. In other words, we have evolved many contrary characteristics as humans. Now, the question is, you can say that compassion, for example, has evolved. But to decide that compassion is a value is not something that biology or evolution can say. In other words, to say that um, evolution has fostered our morality is already to assume a morality in order to identify those characteristics. To make the point clearer, um, perhaps in a Spartan culture, you know, two and a half thousand years ago, they would have said, listen, we have evolved. Your certain, certain men have evolved strength and power and, and sense of pride and so on. And uh, we see that and therefore, we know it's natural. <laughs> so, and again, speaking from a British point of view, especially, or European, we have to realise that identifying evolved traits is already assuming a morality, and that was then culturally bound to a certain extent. Of course, the culture in turn is uh, informed by biology to a certain extent. But nonetheless, um, I think the flow of different uh, moralities through the ages shows that that's, that is the case. There's also another little 
important philosophical point that is called the Isort Gap from David Hume, Hume's guillotine, which is just because something might be the case doesn't therefore entail that one ought to follow it. Um, so just because it is the case that we have evolved, uh, let's say, altruism doesn't mean one ought to be altruistic. This is logical faux pas, as it were. So there's that as well. However, of course, we have also evolved to get on with each other, you know, with social animals to an extent. But the question is, um, to what extent? And I think that violence is also part of humanity and thus explains the wars we have and the battles we constantly face and then the constant um, need for peace thereafter. But I, my pessimistic view in a way is that there'll always be war, there'll always be conflict, unfortunately, and we can have temporary solutions. But ultimately, this is our path. I'd like to believe even though I know this is not the fact, I'd like to believe that morality is inherent biologically. And believing is such a nice word, you don't have to prove it. So I'd like to believe that. <laughs> But then I'm thinking of Gaza, for instance, being more practical. There is a shift on global level about our perspective on Gaza because the propaganda you know, favoring Israel is not working anymore. So New York Times published the killed kids in Palestine on its first page. This is a big shift. How did that happen? It happened through people telling their stories and other people hearing those stories. And it worked despite the fact there is this humongous propaganda machine. So I'd like to think that people tend towards good if they know enough. As I said, this is a matter of faith. It's not a matter of scientific truth that I believe in the good in people. When I say this, it, it sounds like I'm coming the, from the land of unicorns and I have this pink person and whatever. It's not like that. I'm coming from the source of evil. I, I, I witness and I'm still witnessing the ultimate radical evil in my country. So my stance is not coming from this life full of nice people, full of niceties and kindness and compassion. It's the opposite, actually. That is why I am constantly saying that people are good. Human beings are good. We have to tend towards good. And this is inherent in us. It is more of more like, actually, I'm being an activist, maybe, if I can say that, of the good, because good needs more voices now. This is why I'm saying it. I am not grounding this idea, so to speak. Mm. I am, I'm trying to be the voice of good so that the evil, uh, evil's noise is less heard. Alison, what can the religious Christian perspective do about this strange idea that good news is no news? This is what we've kind of heard here. You know, if it's if it's interesting, it's going to be kind of tough. The devil gets all the bad lines we seem to be hearing here. I mean, what's your take on that? Well, I, I think what Eche says is really, really important, that there is something heroic in stressing that good is more foundational. When we look at Gaza, when we look at Myanmar, when we look at all the places in the world where we see so much bad, it is a choice. We know that as, as apes become more social, they become more violent. Uh, we know that as we evolve, our capacities for evil increase with our capacities for free action. And so we are involved um, in a heroic struggle. And obviously, the news will always be dominated by what is bad. Mm. But the fact that 
they say it's bad already says that good has priority. Otherwise, it wouldn't be bad. Um, and that is something that I think we can all agree on. I would just say, you know, that that in order to have a stance from which to see it, we're offering it and we're offering a view of humankind that is realistic. We can be unfaithful to that vision and just have horrible guilt and sort of stick people in it. But at our best, religions offer a position for transformation of the world. And religious people can do very bad things, but they also, you know, in the pandemic are at the forefront of service because they know that good is more foundational. As you earlier on said that people tend towards good if they know enough. Now, that's a fascinating idea for me. It means that knowledge and wisdom, perhaps tied to emotion, can actually, you know, get these stories out there, the illustration of Gaza, the narrative and so on. But, you know, from your three various perspectives, how can we actually get people to know enough to push us over that threshold? What techniques would you recommend in this situation, given that there is, you know, uh, moralism appears highly conditional? Well... I mean, I suppose there's the, the theoretical and the practical side of that. So uh, the practical side would be, you know, being in the midst of it, of course, would be uh, the best forms of understanding what's what's at issue, the threats and so on, and then um, thinking about solutions to that. But, you know, but one can know too much, perhaps. <laughs> so <laughs> I think, um, you know, beyond that, if one tries to distance oneself from it, but why would one want to, if one did? one just happened to be that way um you know you can start to doubt everything you get you look at the history i mean again it comes back to this there is you know you look through history and through the world today and we see different moralities for example um you know saudi theocracy the morals of saudi theocracy today are rather distinct from north european values today for example now why why is that is is it the case that one of us is right and one of us is wrong or are they both different subjective viewpoints you know even even the question as to whether theocracy is inferior to democracy and it depends again on your metaphysical stance so if you know too much perhaps you i think there's a danger of becoming impractical and, and this is kind of a danger of of nihilism it leads you into this horrible abyss where you don't you start not to believe in anything at all because you see too many sides and um, that kind of makes you inactive in many ways. And now you would say that's bad, again, if you had a morality to judge that as bad, but then you see part of the abyss is you don't even, yeah, you can't even do that. Yeah. So that's where I am at the moment in this horrific uh, chasm. Indeed, abyss, horrific chasm, empty streets. You know, we, we seem to have this very, very vivid image here. Actually, this idea that we're drifting away from a, um, a universal morality into the abyss, <laughs> You use Peter's word. I mean, where's it going to end now? Well, uh, now from a historic point of view, I think this whole, you know, abyss thing started after the Cold War was over. Uh, after the big triumphalism of capitalism, saying that this is the system that is the natural state of human being. Therefore, it is unquestionable quote unquote, there is no alternative. So we started thinking in this, uh, we, we stopped thinking, I think, about, and we stopped really discussing about matters. By the way, I want to say something about this relativity thing. It's not a, about knowing too much, I think, Peter. I mean, like, how 
how can we say that Saudi Saudi autocracy uh, has a morality? There's no morality there. There's this power, oppressive power, and a power that wants to be sustainable, fucking forever. I don't see any moral values there. Uh, so it is not, or we shouldn't be too relativistic about this. There has been a political movement since, let's say, it goes back to the 1960s, of course, but then in the near future, near uh, past, uh, it started with uh, World Social Forum, Seattle and other things. And it went on through Tahrir, Gezi, and now Black Lives Matter. And I see a overarching you know, line there. So these people ask for dignity in every language. I think this is something we can build upon, a more practical understanding of good, and we can talk about that good. So there is no relativity there. People, even the privileged ones, are now talking about living in an indignified system. So this is another reason I believe in humankind, because they are you know, throwing their weight towards a better system, a moral, more moral system and so on. I'm, I'm, I'm just asking, you know, where are we heading if we don't do these things? Are we going to see the collapse of the Western civilization as we saw, say, the Roman Empire? No, I'm, yeah, this is the thing. Uh, yeah, this was, this was the thing I was going to say. You know, every system has this magic ability of making people believe that when the system is over, all is over. I think we are going through that period now. That's why people are talking about Ebbe's apocalyptic, you know, visions of the world and so on. No, it's only the system that is collapsing. It's not humankind that is collapsing. But the propaganda machine have been so immense, so strong that we really started, even those of us who are emancipated, let's say, who know a lot, we started feeling at least that, mm. you know, we are coming to an end. It's like we are like sailors, like who did not know the world was round. And they thought that they're going to fall from the world. We are there, I think. That is why, actually, I'm talking about good, humankind, faith in humankind, and so on. You're not there in Britain. Uh, you had just a preview of what's going to happen through Brexit and how it actually, how the radical evil can intrude to your personal life, to your individual perspective on the world, and or your uh, perspective on humankind. We have been suffering 10 times more than that for last 20 years. So it made me think because I saw people losing faith in anything, actually. And the cynicism became a, a, a collective problem in Turkey. So that is why I'm talking about these things. And that is why I am trying to put a historical, practical and political view on the subject of good. It's not going to be some metaphysical or philosophical matter for you. It's going to be all of us, for all of us, because the system is collapsing, it's going to be very personal matter that you're going to be thinking passionately about. I do think that. And because, you know, what we saw in Turkey was a preview of what's going to happen in the rest mm. of the world. Interestingly, you say that as we drift towards this, this, this terrible state, a lot of people are returning to religion in one form or another. I mean, it seems hardly a day goes by there, not another church or place of worship of one form or another, or alternative forms, seem to crop up every day. I mean, Alison, what can we do really to take back control, to use that phrase, for uh, getting ourselves back to this kind of more informed, transcendent focus on the necessity of kindness and respect and tolerance? I hope and pray it could, because I think we have a problem between the local the national and the universal at the moment. So we're having these very bad nationalisms, 
we're having these huge sort of new imperial forces in China. And we're having people who are identifying themselves very narrowly, either through identity politics or through a kind of nationalist kind of identity. And we somehow need to find a way to negotiate between these identities. And that's where I think a revival of virtue ethics will help us, because although aims, they're about human flourishing, they're about a way in which you try and instantiate the good through your practices and your habits, through very practical things, but having in front of you that idea of the good, that there is a good, and you hope to act like a good person in those particular circumstances. And I think those kinds of ways of instantiating the virtues which, I mean, it's not just religious people. Iris Murdoch, for example, who was not a believer, propounded a kind of non-religious virtue ethics. So it was based on an idea of the good. And I think we need a kind of revival of that kind of thinking in a way that, that has a role for religions, because religions are forms of virtue ethics. They're about not just being rules, but about becoming a kind of person particularly Christianity, which is following a particular kind of person, being what my husband would call a non-identical repetition of that person, acting in specific circumstances for the good, desiring the good and recognising the good in others. That's the only hope, but it won't come out of this kind of post-structuralist perspectival form of the good, nor the kind of utilitarianism that you're seeing in places like China. Alison, I would love actually, Peter, you too as well, to read together because I mentioned Iris Murdoch alongside with Simone Weil and Hannah Arendt when it comes to this morality stuff. So, yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, saying Iris Murdoch reminded me that. Yeah. Something really quite profound appears to be arriving here is that you know, if we're going to do anything to get us out of this approaching mess, which is closer to some of us than others, as Eche has pointed out, we need to actually have a much more sophisticated way of thinking about thinking and feeling. We need to like plug into some, well, transcendence is one word, but what about expanding the whole idea of the mind through psilocybin, as Peter might advocate, or through meditation or reflex, that, you know, or, or, or yoga or exercise or war. <laughs> what can we do to use more peaceful methods to actually, you know, take ourselves to this, this, this higher level, which seems fundamentally necessary? As long as it's not a selfish kind Indeed. of solipsistic kind of exercise, but one that has an idea of the good of others within it. So intercession we prayer rather than just pure meditation. Not that I'm against pure meditation and contemplation. I think it's wonderful. But spirituality itself can become a kind of fetishized, mm -hmm. marketized, commodified kind of personal growth thing. But if it doesn't, though, if it doesn't, if we can, for example, embrace the Buddhist idea of the dhyanas, you know, the higher levels of awareness, and get those woven into the warp and weft of daily chat, the sort of things that bloke about in pubs, mm -hmm. how do we do that? Um, I, I suppose that there are practical matters that come to all of us, and um, 
and thus an end is born through those practical matters. We want to see resolution in Palestine. For example, we want to see resolution with trade agreements in post-Brexit and so on. These are, And then we can work towards those, and that sort of forms a kind of normativity. Um, so as you were saying, Alison, there are different levels here. There's sort of national, international, universal, and so on. And as I said, with the, the ecological crisis, that seems to be uh, an international issue at the moment that hopefully can be resolved, and then there will be other issues thereafter. Um, with regard to a return to virtue ethics, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very much in favour of virtue ethics. I see Nietzsche as a virtue ethics in many ways, and certainly Spinoza, um, his book was called Ethics, because it was about uh, ways to achieve tranquility of mind through metaphysics. The question is, who chooses which virtues are universal and applicable to all? Because as we have seen, as I said about Aristotle's own original virtue ethics, I mean, they differ. You know, we wouldn't want to go back to the virtue ethics of ancient Athens, for example. Or ancient Sparta. Now, with regard, however, to these, let's say, local moral issues, and when I say local, I don't mean to demean them, I'm, I'm talking about wars and whatever, and ecological crises. One way of striving towards, I think, um, let's talk about ecology and psilocybin, is through um, a greater sense of nature connectedness. This, I think, res re relates a little bit to the Gothic uh, that you were speaking about, Alison, um, although I'm not an expert on it. But you see, for example, in the Romantic poets, you know, uh, Coleridge, Wordsworth, Southey, Davy, and so on, um, this kind of... Um, this intuition of uh, unity to nature, uh, they had it seemingly quite naturally although Spinoza was an influence to him. And I, another thing about Spinoza, I should say, he's, he was the original pantheist. God is nature. Yes. And I can accept that. that Thank definitely. you. <laughs> um, right. it, there's a lot of um, empirical studies recently from Sam Gandhi and David Luke and others showing that certain psychedelics in certain settings foster, induce uh, a greater nature connectedness. Now, this is empirically not proved, but suggestive. The next question is what, why they do that. And that's really a, a question in the philosophy of mind that I'm very interested in going through Spinoza and so on. But it seems that there is a moral imperative in many ways on that local level, not universal level, seems to be a local imperative, moral imperative to foster a nature identity or a greater appreciation of nature in itself with intrinsic value, not merely instrumental value, um, that um, certain methods such as psychedelic intake, wise psychedelic intake, I should say, can uh, yield. But again, that's on a practical, practical level. Also, I, I should just simply add this, it enriches people's lives to foster such a nature connectedness. You know, in, in terms of eudaimonia flourishing in virtue ethics, it, it certainly fosters that. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. <laughs>